Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 32,637 people from 159 countries and is supported by 456 organisations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 54 country contacts, engaged in defending women's rights. And if you'd like to join us, have a look on the website and uh, get involved with us if you'd like. This week, we have Veronica Moraes from Brazil. She's going to talk about an attack on Brazilian women's freedom of expression. Then we're going to hear from Frida Davis from the UK talking about uh, the holistic purpose of women's centres and why they are the best place to refer women for community sentences instead of prison. We have Anna from Germany and she's going to talk about Radfem Berlin and also about the translation and publication of some of Sheila Jeffries' work into German and a upcoming meeting, International Feminist Resistance, which is happening in a couple of weeks in, in, uh, in Berlin. We also have Uta Hagen, who has just published a book, In the Curated Woods, True Tales from a Grass Widow. And she's from, Uta is from the USA. And the story is about when your husband claims to be you, a story of trauma and recovery. We're now going to go to Frida Davis. She is from the UK. And the title of her talk is A Women's Centre in Every Local Authority. Um, Frida Davis has been a teacher, advice and information worker and advocate for mental health. She has been a volunteer in several organisations and a founder member, trainer and chair at Women's Centre Calderdale and Kirk Lees from the late 1990s to 2013. Frida retired from work in 2012 and is also an artist printmaker so thank you so much for coming on Frida and sharing this information about women's centers and alternatives to prison for women and over to you. In 1985 when we opened our women's center which we called the well women's center at that point as part of that movement um, I was asked to uh, write a poem um, about the opening and, and these are the words I wrote. Abandon status at the door. Drop your pretensions on the floor. Enter this room with open hearts, prepared to play a million parts. Sufferer, carer, wise or fool. Worker, lover, back at school. Supporter, leaner, strong or weak. Skilled with words or slow to speak. Practical, sensible. Clever too, clumsy, shy, not sure what to do, loving, giving, full of woe, one more step, not far to go, all you are, all you can be, this well woman centre is thee and me. And uh, our, our centre opened with those words really. <coughs> so. 
When I moved from teaching to the Citizens Advice Service in 1974, I had a crash course in real-life situations, dealing with one-to-one -one problems that people brought and discovering the complexity of our welfare state and how people can get lost in it. It was a good time for new legislation as Harold Wilson's government brought in a number of socialist reforms, such as the Equal Pay Act, divorce laws, employment laws, consumer protection and more. The welfare state was set up to improve people's lives, but it was based on a patriarchal view of society. This pervaded all its institutions. As a result, it had an analytical approach, picking up symptoms and solving presenting problems without giving time to discover the underlying issues, which are often far too complex for a 10 or 20 minute interview to uncover. In the 1970s, women were challenging these, these attitudes because the assumptions of male protection and dominance affected all the services, financial support, banking, employment, health services, mental health, education, politics, and the criminal justice system. The women's movement in the UK started with political conferences, <clears throat> but by 1980, these had fragmented and women shifted to focusing on the need for equality in their own workplaces, such as health, social services, education. There were many consciousness raising groups. I was in an East London one and women's studies was just beginning. And we moved to Yorkshire in 1981, and my new women's study group looked at health, and we started campaigning for a well woman centre. This came from a survey that we ran in the local market, which showed that women avoided bothering the doctor with women's problems, problems which limited their activity. Anything connected with menstruation and menopause were hard to broach to dismissive male doctors. Many were addicted to the drugs the doctor gave them, as antidepressants. We got funding to open the centre by 1985, and there were quite a few across the country. It was a, quite a big campaign, but it depended very much on local volunteers and local campaigns. To start with, it was just a drop-in with a nurse, and we found a woman doctor. Local GPs responded by holding well-woman clinics in competition. But we drew in the pregnancy testing group to the centre. We had Punjabi, Bengali and Urdu speakers, a lesbian group. We were able to accommodate a tutor for pregnant schoolgirls with her class. And we persuaded a local college that counselling students who needed experience in listening could train as our volunteers. And some came back then as qualified counsellors and offered free sessions. And then the women and violence group joined us. And that was when we began to take off and grow. And to me, the key thing was this holistic approach. Volunteers would treat anyone who came in as an equal and work together to find solutions. We trained our volunteers in listening skills and empathy, body language, trust building, and with snippets of funding from the health authority and the local council, it survived. And around 2000, we got lottery funding to buy our building. Then we merged with the centre in Kirklees and opened activity in Dewsbury too. Then we commissioned a book explaining our approach. And then Baroness Corston came to visit in 2005. 
this is the logo of our women's centre. But there are quite a few women's centres still going, but nowhere near enough. It's about women-centred working and diverting women from prison. And it's based on the work that Angela Everson and Claire Jones have mainly done, who have been the CEOs of Women's Centre for a long time. And they've got um, the Champagne medals. This is the model. <clears throat> I don't think you can see all that. There's a lot of clutter over the top of it. But uh, this, this model shows the woman here um, presenting at the centre, often with children, met by a support worker. This focus is not on itemised problems, but on her holistic needs. And the bond of tr trust is built by the skills of the worker who treats her as an equal. Pressing matters, however trivial seeming, are dealt with first to relieve pressure on her. And with support given, the woman can open up about the past and plan for the future. A range of services available, information, signposting, sending to essential places, advice and support, and individual casework, and then complex casework where a support worker is allocated to work through with her. And then the woman will grow in skill and confidence with the courses available and the groups that she joins. And then she has options to volunteer and even in many cases working as a paid worker in the centre. So the purpose of Women's Centre is to improve the quality of women's lives and the vision of Women's Centre is to provide a holistic one-stop shop service that combines centre-based and community-based services. One-stop shop meaning that the woman stays in the centre and the people she needs to see come to see her instead of sending her running all around the town. Women's Centre services are focused on meeting the needs, aspirations and desires of women in order to help them have an improved quality of life. And what do we mean by quality of life? Improving health and well-being, increasing training and employment opportunities for improved economic conditions, raising self-confidence, self-esteem and social interaction skills, improving citizenship and social inclusion, and supporting the development of positive, safe and stable relationships. Many of these women have multiple declarations and in the survey we did back in 2010 we found that more than half had issues about childhood abuse, disrupted education, health conditions, mental health, insecure housing, fractured families, debt and poverty, recent domestic violence, their children have been abused, drug and alcohol misuse and victims of crime. 39% had perpetrated crimes. And uh, as you can see, if more than half of them had those issues, they had many of those issues. Each of them had many of those issues. So how we work, as I explained, the support worker listens and hears what the woman's asking for. And together they identify her wider needs. In one case, for a woman, it was to get her teeth fixed which was stopping her from all her other interactions. Partnership working with statutory and voluntary services, putting the woman at the centre, 
finding services and opportunities together. Recognising connections between domestic violence, women's offending, poverty, social exclusion, mental health and well-being. Considering the outcomes for the children. Recording results and issues and evaluating our work and projects capturing the voices of women. So the broader work of the Women's Centre over the years, and it is something like 38 years since the centre opened, um, promoting effective interventions for women and girls, promoting them to the wider public and to government, developing a women-specific trauma-sensitive approach, maintaining the safety of single-sex premises, external provision of domestic violence support for men, and guiding strategic and operation developments both locally and nationally, including diversion from prison. So in 2006, Jean Corston, she visited us the year before, and she, she was investigating um, the situation of women in prison because several women had died in prison, um, several suicides, I think. And uh, so she was asked to investigate by the government. 2006, that was the Labour government. She said, it's timely to bring out a radical change in the way we treat women throughout the whole of the criminal justice system. And this must include not just those who offend, but also those at risk of offending. And this will require a radical new approach, treating women both holistically and individually, a women-centred approach. And several women centres across the country took part in the pilot project. And our centre was funded to set up and host Women's Breakout, which coordinated the centres that delivered this service. So this was a service for women at risk of going to prison. And they were sent to the centres through probation and through the courts. And Women's Centres, um, Women's Breakout's work is finished now, but they continue to work together to support each other with the work, both operationally and strategically, locally and nationally. The House of Commons Justice Committee now, this is bringing us up to date, in July 2022, they brought out a report on women in prison. And sad to see that things have not progressed as we are hoping. The, the Liaison and Diversion Services <clears throat> um, are really important in reducing the number of women entering custody. And schemes that reduce reoffending and engage women in long-term support at local women's centres are what the report is, is putting forward and affirming the importance of that. This is from their summary. The initiative run by Surrey Police, they said, in association with a local women's centre, is able to reduce the reoffending rate to 6% compared to a national average of more than 25%. And those are the sort of figures our centre had too. Government's lack of progress against the aims and objectives that were set out in their own strategy is what the report is highlighting. And the Ministry of Justice is predicting an increase in the female prison population of more than a third over the present levels in the next three years. So that's how badly they're failing women and failing to keep them out of prison. Diverting women from prison is really important because it's not just the women, it's the families and the children. When men go to prison, their children mostly remain in the family home 
is usually a woman there to look after them. When women go to prison, their children on the whole do not remain at home. A very big percentage go into care and are sent miles away from anyone they know. And many of these families never get back to the world. And women in prison mostly have a complex history of trauma, abuse and mental ill health. But most women are imprisoned for repeat petty theft and small things like TV license evasion and even library fines can send a woman to prison and have. So community sentencing is a great idea that instead of going to prison, the woman goes to a community sentence. But there are problems with it. When they're sentenced to community service, it often means working with a group of men overseen by a male probation officer. That's because the women are such a small proportion of the numbers. This is exactly the situation in which women are drawn back into crime. And lack of funding means that known solutions are not being implemented. There has been some, Angela tells me that there has been some money on offer recently, but quite small amounts to try to keep these things going. Community referrals to women's centres have been able to reduce reoffending rates dramatically, but they are few and far between. And this means your chances of such a sentence is a postcode lottery. I'm just going to explain about liaison and diversion, which is a plan which probation and courts and prisons um, work on. So this is generally across the population and the prison population. Liaison and diversion services identify people who have mental health learning disability, substance misuse or other vulnerabilities. And ideally they diverted when they first come into contact with the criminal justice system as suspects, defendants or as offenders. And the service supports people through early stages of criminal system pathway, referring them for appropriate health or social care. And where it's suitable, it enables them to be diverted away from the criminal justice system into a more appropriate setting. But you see, you have to have that appropriate setting. And for women, as I say, they're few and far between. And the aims, very recognisable, to improve overall health outcomes for people, support people in a reduction of reoffending, identify vulnerabilities early on to reduce the likelihood that they'll reach crisis points, and ensure the right support can be put in place from the start. So what do women's centres offer beyond this? Women's centres embody these principles, but they work in a single sex setting. Women who've experienced violence and abuse at the hands of men say a women-only setting is essential to allow them to even begin to address their trauma. So if there was a women's centre securely funded in every local authority, community centres things could be so much better. But there aren't very many. And if you have one in your area, Please support them. It's just so important. And what what sort of centres are they? Because I'd love you to go back home and say, let's have a campaign to get a women's centre in our area if there isn't one. So what kind of qualities? They need to understand local needs, which are very different in each area. They need a women-centred approach and a trauma-informed approach. 
and safe, confidential single sex premises. And they need as an organisation to have regular evaluation of how they're doing. They need to be critical of their own work. And involving those using the service in designing the service. But also local multi-agency working at all levels. And wide connections and support within the voluntary sector. And strong governance, which of course depends again on volunteers. And strong management. And a skilled and stable workforce. So here's some useful contacts and organisations, which I think can be made available to you perhaps through the chat. And if you want to ask me more questions about this, and this is the reason why, right from 2014, when I started to be aware of the, um, the, the, the new ideas about women, um, I really felt anxious for the women's services that we have. And I have been asserting all along that the Equal Pay Act, the, Equal, the Equality Act says single sex services and not gender. This is the details for our centre, but there are other centres, I know the Nottingham one, but there are other centres around the country. There's one up in, in Cumbria and uh, Bristol and Brighton, I think, um, are doing the, the prison work still. So we're now going to go on to our third speaker, who is Anna from Ger Germany. Um, Anna is part of uh, Radfem Berlin, and she's helping organise a uh, conference meeting that's International Feminist Resistance, which will be in Berlin at the end, towards the end of the month. Anna is a researcher, writer, feminist activist, uh, for women's rights, sex-based rights, and against les lesbian erasure. She's the founder of Radfem Berlin, an activist group in Ger Germany, and founder of the small publisher house RFB Books, focused only on publishing feminist theory in German. So it's fantastic to have you here, Anna, and welcome, and over to you. We are um, a group of women, mainly foreigner women living in Berlin. Some of us are not fully in Berlin all the time, but we are definitely in Germany. The reason why we founded Ralph in Berlin was to bring more feminist theory into German. So this was our main goal, that more women can access to the feminist theory, because as you probably know, there are not much of a theory translated into German and easy to understand, right? Because our oppression is not something we can kind of read um, in one afternoon. We really need to be prepared and well, you know the processes. So um, our main goal was to bring this kind of analysis handy to the German uh, women or the ones speaking German. This led us into uh, more political work and activism. So we are definitely non-partisan, but of course we are, this doesn't mean that we are, um, we are not apolitical, yeah? We, we, we do um, feminism and uh, in a political way. 
Um, we also focus on lesbian activism to keep lesbian spaces and culture far and away from men and to uh, spread this. And this is, I made like a, like a presentation to, to show us, to, to show who we are. We, we have online presence. We started uh, showing our content in Instagram with identifies as Apple. Um, this is also a, a sticker that we made later. And we started our group with a German phrase from the second wave that is via sin Frauen, via sin viele, wir haben es satt. So that means we are women, we are many, we are fed up. And we really like this phrase because it shows uh, very much to the point um, what the group is also about. We are very straightforward. We are not uh, cute to communicate our um, message. We are not uh, using men's uh, language or trans activist language. We're very straightforward with that. And this is also our webpage, www.fembelin.de. As soon as we were founded, we joined RFM Frankfurt to support them and to help them um, with the first demonstrations in Germany against self-ID. This was last year, May 18th and 19th. And two of the parties that at this point, they were part of the opposition, presented two different projects um, for self-ID and both projects failed last year. So this is also what you are going to find in our webpage and our um, nets, social nets. We really show where we have this kind of raw style, like Berliner raw style <laughs> to show what it is basically. And yeah, we also um, focus on activism on the street, but we also have an online shop where you can, for example, get um, the stickers in German, some of them are in English as well. And also we write about uh, feminist topics and analysis. We also uh, write articles about what is happening in the country. Most of the times we publish in three languages. So you are going to find them also in English and Spanish together with German. So this is also our style. We, we use humor in a way um, to be able to even talk about this because in Germany, everything came very late. So basically in the news, we are talking about these topics like in the last, I don't know, what year and a half or two years maybe. So um, at the beginning, of course, nobody was talking about it. So using um, humor was a very good tool for us to express how we felt about what is happening and we use the cut very much to show how we feel about this advance on women's rights and the craziness of trans activism. And we also worked with um, many different uh, feminist groups. For example, we helped organize the, the demonstration that happened in Madrid last year where 7,000 feminists joined. It was, uh, great, beautiful. And when we came back, we said, okay, why don't we do something like this here in Germany? <laughs> we need something happening. So we uh, set up a manifest with 
our demands and what we want and to kind of condense all the fem feminist uh, agenda in this manifest we were lucky enough to have it translated into many languages and of course we had the structure to go to the streets now when we publish uh, the, the let's say the flyer about the demonstration we automatically had the hasi hasi is um it's an influencer for the trans activism that works very close with the german government in in the way that the german like sven lehmann um, is always sharing her content for example sven lehmann works for the greens and it's currently in the government so um, she also openly supports the german prostitution lobby uh, in her um, online um, nets. So when we said that we would demonstrate, she automatically uh, registered a counter rally, a counter demo, not to talk about anybody's rights, just to go against us. And of course she made fun of our manifest. Um, she says gig and turf, so against turf, swerf, bullshit. So this was already uh the terms <laughs> that she offered and we decided to call the women anyways to to demonstrate so this was our demonstration in march called every woman counts for the feminist agenda and we read our manifest when we had the counter demo happening at the same time some meters away from us but we had uh, a security, we worked on the security of the event. We also counted, we had uh, the Berliner police helping and we had a good event. We were a lot of women. And of course, this was the counter demo of uh, the trans activists. This is basically what they had to offer. Uh, sex work is, is real work and okay, the flag, but there were many we we thought that it would be much worse but it turned out to be very good for us uh, we were we counted at some point of the demonstration up to uh, 83 women that day we had an open mic uh, moment where women from different countries came to express how uh, the situation in their countries is for example from mexico we had a a woman a refugee from ukraine we had someone from asia it was very nice and we kind of all connected with each other because many of us even though that we were in germany uh, we haven't met in person at the moment and this demonstration kind of brought us together we met in real life we um the feeling was better so i think this was a very good um, moment for women in Germany and of course this demonstration also gave us a lot of uh, exposure I think the WDI also spoke about our demonstration and this kind of brought us to the point where we thought okay we said that we need to uh, bring more theory into German so maybe we need to get more formal about it and the first author that uh, we decided to contact was of course Sheila Jeffries and this is 
actually this is great because she said it in the lesbian heresy in 1993 where she said um, the social construction of gender um, is a very old and basic tenet of feminism but for postmodernists this like other traditional and very well-worn feminist insight are uh, sorry I have to um, here are seen to be new and exciting and indeed it might well be that they are seeming exciting to a whole new generation of young women who don't have any access to feminist literature of the 60s and the 70s because that literature does not appear on their courses and is nowhere referenced. So with this phrase, I think it's, a, it's great to condense the idea that this was said like 30 years ago and it's totally valid for the German situation. This is why we formally founded the Feministische Stimmen, which means uh, Feminist Voices, Waltham Berlin Books or RFB Books Verlag. We are um, translating feminist theory into German. We, we've started with the great Sheila Jeffries. We um, translated much of her work, much of many of her analysis about feminism about our sexuality. We divided the book into four topics and we really took her work from different years. So um, all the information is edited by us. You, you can find the book already on, in pre-sale in our web, rathenberlin.de. And these are some of the topics you are going to find inside of the book. Um, the book we dedicated to lesbians. And Sheila is going to come herself to Berlin in September to present the book, to give a talk. So we are extremely excited about it. We are, we just can't believe it. So we are so thankful that she's coming all the way to Germany after so long to support us women here and our movement here. So, the situation um, and why we asked uh, Sheila Jeffries to support us so much and to all I'm, to all the women in the world that could can come to Berlin, we actually ask you to come to our demonstration in September because the situation in Germany is extremely hard. And the reason is that now, the Greens are in power, the, the parties that are presenting and pushing for the self-ID laws are in power, they are not opposition anymore, and they come, of course, with all the package. Um, currently, we don't have any um, self-ID, but we do have the transsexual law in Germany, which is called the SG, which allow men uh, to be called women, by uh, legal fiction. This also allows these men into women's spaces already. So now what they are trying to do is both ways. First, they will present a self-ID law, like to have it enacted, but they are also going to try to modify the constitution, the German constitution to identify and recognize gender identities in the constitution. So we are not 
having only one law enacted to have uh, to allow men be called women, but also they want to change the, con the German constitution to recognize gender identities. And this is very dangerous for women in Germany. And this is why we are doing this uh, big demonstration where we are uh, asking help worldwide. <laughs> Sheila uh, herself helped us. She made a video for us, Karadansky as well, Maria Vinetti, all the feminists uh, around the world are helping, are calling women to come to Berlin at the end, so in September. And this is why it's so important. We also have to thank uh, Get The Out UK for also supporting and giving us space to, to invite women to come to Berlin. And of course, the, 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 the uh, WDI International. So this was a photo of the last demonstration in March, and we really hope to see you in Berlin in September. We are now going to go to Uta Hagen. Uta's just published a book which looks amazing. It's called In the Curated Woods, True Tales from a Grass Widow, When Your Husband Claims to Be You, A Story of Trauma and Recovery. So Uta um, she's, she writes about the tra of the trauma and recovery process of women, mothers whose husbands have claimed a female identity and erase our roles through identifying themselves as the mothers of our children. Uta's memoir, In the Created Woods, published at iuniverse.com slash bookstore, I'll put that in the chat, mm. is available through Amazon and these places. And you can either buy it in America or you can get it uh, in e-copy in the way that, the way we'll get it. So Uta's journey started as a trans widow in 1992 when Uta discovered her then husband's diaries of his cross-dressing. So thank you so much for coming on and thank you for waiting. Yes, so um, I'm Uta Hagen, that's my pen name, and I'm author of this book, In the Curated Woods, which um, documents my nine months of um, sort of really focused self-recovery uh, from something that started exactly 30 years ago this month. There are several reasons that I didn't use the term trans widow in the subtitle, although I was advised to quite a few times. Um, I'm tired of writing the word trans. And as well, I thought my book might get banned from uh, some of the platforms. Uh, just for having trans and widow together at the same in the same place. Uh, the term grass widow was used in Europe to denote a woman who chose to live independently. It actually goes back, it's cited as far back as 1528. And I felt that I wanted to use this more female-centered term, which to me, maybe tells us that there were women in the past who decided they had to leave a husband and figured out how to live independently. And they were given um, the honorific involving widow, even though the man they were married to was still living. So that was my, um, my rationale behind the use of the word grass widow. I would, I would actually sort of like to revive it in a way. Um, uh, for quite a while, I was unaware of the attacks on J.K. Rowling and the trend of young women to start identifying as males. Um, 
when I figured out that my status as the ex-wife of a man who ideates that he's a woman was much more common, this is maybe three years ago, um, especially after I discovered Tinsel Angel's website. She is also a trans widow and her website is transwidowsvoices.org where there are many testimonials of women like me. Um, I realized that most name most men like Nettie, which is the pen name of my now ex-husband um, in my writing, um, I realized that they were also self-identifying as mothers of the children. And this was an issue that back in the 1990s, when we were going through the divorce and the custody battle, uh, the judge specifically wrote, I remember by hand at the end, that only Uta is to be referred to as the children's mother because some things had already happened where he had omitted my um, name at all as being the mother of the children on some school documents and things like that. And I brought them to court. And so the judge said, no, this can't happen. But what's changed um, since the early 2000s is the word gender replacing sex. And so it's, um, I spoke to uh, a well-versed attorney from New York City who, for example, said that people can say they're gender fluid. Parents of children can say they're gender fluid and they have the right to one day say, I'm the mom. And then next week they can say, I'm the dad, <laughs> which uh, it just doesn't seem to me to be caring for the children at all. So, um, and there are very few of us who have gotten published. I had to self-publish. Um, I know that Christine Benvenuto wrote a book, I think in 2012, that was published by St. Martin's Press called Sex Changes. And uh, from, from excerpts that I've read of it, um, her ex-husband sounds very much like the egotistical and arrogant um, character that my ex-husband is. Um, and I just heard yesterday that a woman named, whose pen name is Sharon Thrace, will be publishing um, uh, an, a memoir about the same situation, which is titled 18 Months. So I guess you can imagine what that means. Um, and as far as I can tell, she's the only, um, only the fifth woman to publish a book um, about our experiences. And um, uh, I know that actually an affiliate of um, WDI, Vaishnavi Sundar, uh, interviewed me and several other trans widows extensively. And in 2023, she will be releasing her documentary about us. And I believe the title is uh, Behind the Looking Glass. Um, so we are very much discouraged from telling our side of the stories. And I feel that in, and in many ways, it's very much a parallel with lesbians who um, want to be able to have their women-only spaces and not have a male body intruding into their meetings and their dating apps and things like this. Um, and in fact, uh, just last year, I found that just exactly how pedantic and directed and focused this uh, suppression of our stories is because there's a web page online, which is called the Trans Journalists Association Style Guide. And it's, it's anonymous, there's no names connected with it. However, it has been basically adopted by all the mainstream um, press organizations 
at least in the United States. And it's about, uh, you know, very copiously asking a person's pronouns and um, uh, never mentioning that they used to identify as the opposite sex and uh, unless they want to talk about it, but they also do have a couple of paragraphs uh, regarding the families and the ex-wives and they are making a recipe of how journalists are supposed to write rather than letting journalists do their job um, as, as neutral reporters of what's going on. Um, and they advise that the family's feelings and reactions are overdone and just don't cover them. So that was, that was quite a, a revelation for me. I was uh, just at the end of putting my book together when I read that and it just sort of made sense to me. I realized that I think that um, one reason it's important for women my age who went through this um, going way back to the early nineties should be talking and, and I'm, you know, I have to use a pen name, but I'm going to appear in interviews, you know, with my image and everything and take that risk. Um, because I feel for the younger women that this is happening to, and often they are worried about being canceled and losing their job, being, um, accused of things and and it's it kind of goes on and on there's one woman that graham linenhan had interviewed and um she said that recently her daughter uh, i think her children live with her but but her daughter has been um influenced by all of this um equality talk for the gender woo um and she said straight to her mother um when her mother was you know, talking about kids identifying as non-binary and that that might be a slippery slope and, you know, learn. I think you girls need to learn to appreciate your body. Her daughter turned to her and said, yeah, but you're a war criminal. <laughs> and I think, um, I think in a way, maybe my children uh, would say such a strong thing about me. I have two grown sons. And at this point, because I have uh, written this book and because I refused to call my ex-husband a woman. Uh, what happened was I, th the exact time was a year ago in June, um, I was looking him up online. He's a COO of a, a database management company. And, and I figured out a couple of things based on what I found online and dates going way back and how he was identifying himself in his job. And I realized that he actually must have committed fraud in court about the finances and about his jobs, which were not described that way in court. And he skipped out of paying child support and paying for the college expenses, which he had signed to pay at the end, you know, in the, in the finalizing of the divorce. And um, I am actually entitled in my state in New York state to take him back to court, but I, I just don't wanna put myself through that. Um, despite the fact that with the legal fees that I had to spend to force him to pay something towards our son's college and, um, and the child support that I was out for about seven years, that total is, over a hundred thousand U.S. dollars. Now, I have always been 
very frugal. And I'm fortunate that when my parents died a few years ago, I inherited some money. So I don't want people to think that I'm impoverished or I'm lucky enough that um, I developed some strength. I have a whole program of um, sort of personal mental health recovery, which does not allow, which does not involve taking a lot of pills. Um, so it's exactly 30 years ago this month that I discovered my husband's three journals, which were large sketchbooks filled with his unique fine line printing. He wrote about cross-dressing in Manhattan, which we lived in Brooklyn at the time. And, uh, and at that time, my children were one and four, and I was still nursing the one-year-old. And so I was suddenly very frightened about what he might be doing as far as having any kind of sexual encounters and what he could possibly be bringing home to me. And I don't know if it could possibly go through breast milk or something. It was this, this very unique, you know, nursing mother pattern of thought. Um, so there was the initial shock and his suicide narrative and erratic behavior. And then I left um, about six weeks after I discovered it. And then shortly after that, he detransitioned, although that word detransition wasn't, wasn't a word that was used at the time. In fact, uh, he called himself a transsexual. The gender part of it wasn't, uh, wasn't in the nomenclature yet. Um, I think he really wanted to not be called a transvestite. He wanted to be called a true transsexual. That was somehow important to him. Um, but he detransitioned, grew a beard, and he pressured me to come back and told me I had no proof of his secret identity because I, I didn't have any copies of the, um, the journals and he'd grown a beard. And I came back in January of 1993. And then I lived what I call my two years of purgatory. So um, one point that I really want to make is about the mental health practitioners, because this uh, piece of the window into it that we trans widows have, often we've had some kind of contact with the mental health practitioners that um, our husbands have gone to and diagnosed them usually in one appointment. Um, and we also have gotten reports. We have a lot of, uh, well, she said this and I'm supposed to tell you this and you know, people stay together and they stay married. So there were two mental health practitioners involved at the time. And um, he, he stopped going to them when he detransitioned, but then he went back to them about six months later in secret. And one is a PhD in quotes, sexologist who is still in practice in New York City. And she submitted sworn testimony later in our custody case, though she had not met me. Um, and I know this, I know that she diagnosed him as a transsexual in one appointment on July 20th of 1993, because that was in her sworn testimony. And apparently for the sexologist at, at that time, they took it as a point of pride that they could spot someone with this diagnosis and diagnose them in one appointment. And there's a lot of back and forth going on now about this, especially after this advertising that the Boston Children's Hospital did and the outraged reaction to that. Now doctors are starting to say, no, no, it's a slow process. We talk to the families. Um, for me, I know that that wasn't true in my case. 
Um, so, um, yeah. And um, so I just went through this process and we, of, of, you know, raising my children, I started to take some classes and I was always worried about what is he doing and what is he not telling me? I felt like I was a woman, a woman who didn't have agency. I, I had done some little part-time jobs, but I was really the at-home mother. Um, but in the end of March, 1995, I realized that Nettie must have been on estrogen for quite some time secretly as he was getting breast development. It was the night before our younger son's four-year birthday party. Uh, and I had already previously told Nettie that I'm not interested in um, doing something with sexual role play or the use of uh, sex toys or changing any of our intimate relations to explore whether I could uh, live with him like uh, we used to see couples go on the Oprah show. Uh, and, um, there was this other practitioner that Nettie went, that was the real week to week person. Um, I call her Ruth, the charlatan in the book. And, uh, she had no counseling credentials of any kind. And I think that this is not so uncommon with this. Um, she took cash only. She, her credential was, she was the wife of a doctor and she had a convenient studio near Grand Central Station. Uh, and she had some kind of ad hoc partnership with this PhD psychologist, sexologist, and was supposedly working under her supervision. Um, but I, I did meet her. I never met the psychologist, but I did meet her. I felt that I had to go. It was uh, probably a month later, April 1995. I had to go um, to have an appointment with her and tell her you're not going to be able to help Nettie change me. He keeps on coming back saying, oh, but Ruth says this and, you know, we could stay together. And if our marriage ends, it's really you who's breaking up our family. And so it's, it's this, um, this kind of coercion, this brainwashing. I think he really honestly believed that he wouldn't take responsibility for all the secrecy and spending money and not being there. He missed a lot of our young children's beautiful bedtimes. Um, so the aggressive stance that we see now in gender ideology is what I experienced as one datum. Um, so that's, you know, that's my motivation for doing this writing. Uh, I want to stress though, that in my book, I write about the heartbreaks, but I also write about the many joys of my childhood. And I write about my butterfly gardening and um, I can see butterflies out in my beautiful garden right now, um, which is designed on an English border garden. Uh, and I'm a citizen scientist. I count how many butterflies I have visiting me. And, and I'm, I'm really trying to just move forward in my life. I, I wish that I could say that I could join in in some protests personally like that. Um, but I think that actually a woman like me, um, speaking of the experience very directly, um, the shock that the wives are subjected to and the mother erasure, 
um, is actually quite threatening to the people in the gender ideology. So they will respond very aggressively. Um, I also especially focused in my writing on my relationship with my mother and my grandmothers, because I really wanted to stress what is womanhood, what is motherhood. And um, I think it's, it's really important. I, I cannot in any way say that my husband experienced, you know, anything like I did as a woman having certain kind of women's wisdom passed down to me from my mother and my grandmothers. Um, I, I find it offensive, actually. Um, many of my friends have suggested that I should just stop talking about it because it's so painful. Um, and uh, I see the whole thing as a problem that is better understood as um, some kind of connection between possibly OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and body dissociation. Um, Nettie was beaten as a child. He was an abused child, and uh, that was never processed. Oddly, his parents became strangely happy after he told them that he was going to do all these things. And they had something like eight hours of appointments with the sexologist and and they got told that it's not their fault. <laughs> but he had a very distant, difficult, angry father. See, the wives are the ones who can say, actually, they I don't think they ever took a family history, you know. And at, at, as a, I'm a retired kindergarten teacher, I had taught early grade science and pre-K over a 25-year career. And with my training for children, you know, I see what's going on now as um, just, you know, truly violating all of the principles of child development. So I have my experience as the beleaguered wife, then ex-wife, but I also have other perspectives. And one thing I really appreciated actually long ago, um, you know, back in the 90s when I was just living through the immediate trauma was uh, my lesbian friends said, listen, you know, we don't like those guys either. <laughs> we don't want the tea there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. You know, so, and I, in fact, I have, I have an, a lesbian friend that I've known for over a decade that we taught in the same school and I remember she, she's like maybe a year or two older than me, so late 60s. And, and she said, oh, we just always had to be quiet about that. We weren't allowed. You know, we couldn't. And I just thought, wow, you know, it's just been interesting. I feel like I have things in common with the detransitioners because of my perspective on what the mental health practitioners are doing. I have um, affinities with the lesbian community. And I have especially rather alarmed concerns about the children, the children of our world who are being told lies by their teachers. There's lots of people who have different sort of, they say there are different motivations for this happening. And what do you think? Can you summarize what you think the motivation of your husband or, and also why are the institutions going along with it 
So I suppose as an, you, as him as an individual, but then also why does yeah. why do all the others go along with it? Right, right. Well, I think that in if uh, if Nettie had had the most optimal situation, I think possibly um, it would have been better to be before he married me. <laughs> Maybe he would have come out as a gay man, because I think you know he. He grew up in a uh, not uh, not any kind of you know religiously huge conservative thing. He grew up going to a reformed Jewish uh, synagogue, but you know he he was born in the mid 1950s um, as I was, and and so that was that was a very anti-gay time of childhood. It was probably he probably didn't know anyone you know, at all, uh, who was gay. Um, there, there are a couple of, um, memories that I have from early in our marriage in the night when we were in our twenties and we lived in Manhattan in the early eighties, I think he might've had a couple of gay encounters, you know, with another man. There was a man who approached us once who thought he was very good friends with Nettie and Nettie sent him on his way. And of course, this is the kind of thing that comes back to you. It, it was just a little thing where he said, oh, no, I don't know you. It's mistaken identity, you know, but that kind of comes back to you when you're looking back at everything in your early adult life with 2020 hindsight. And then the thing about um, the second question, um, I think that now with the Internet, of course, uh, there are um, it's a different kind of abuse in a way. I think that there's that if you watch these um, manipulative, pornographic uh, videos on YouTube as a young, vulnerable male or female, that uh, you might get sucked into this cross-sex uh, ideation. Um, and uh, I, th I, think, I think there are a lot of things that are just not being handled right, I, all the way down to physical education in the schools. We're now really lucky to have a live intervention from Cardiff. And we're gonna, I'm going to uh, add the spotlight and ask the uh, Angela Wilde and Lea, Leanne and other, get the L out, to um, uh, tell us what's going on. We are uh, we are having a lunch. <laughs> we are having celebration after an amazing uh, action. We've got uh, an amazing team of women here, which you've seen, and now let's hear them. Uh, <laughs> um, so we today we we went to Pride in Cardiff, and we wanted to discuss the really appalling treatment of lesbians in the LGBT, especially in the Welsh context. Uh, and as you have seen maybe on the footage, it really reflects that the police were appalling, the, the activists on the side were extremely hostile. We were told we had to leave. Um, there was no protection for us, so they refused to, um, to let us march, supposedly for our own safety, but then they were kind of threatening as well. So that's where, yeah, that's where we decided to leave because we were getting actually quite tense. We left when they were saying that they were going to arrest us. Yes, they said they were going to arrest us. So if you follow Get the Out, lesbian is trending for change with about 23,000 uh, tweets. And there's also a very nice interview of the police officer who is telling us 
he's gonna ask us to leave because we are lesbians so please look at look at that because it's, it's really really shocking now we've got another live reporter in the field at the at a demo in london in on Hampstead Heath, uh, Hampstead Ladies Pond, and it's Bernadette O'Malley, who we all know and love, is the tech woman. I'm going to get her up uh, now. So, Bernadette, um, we, can you give us a report? What's happening on Hampstead Heath right now? Um, so we've got Julia is speaking, and she's just um, said an amazing poem about a disabled woman swimming and the freedom that that gives her. Um, we've had some fantastic speakers from Women's Rights uh, Network and somebody else who you may recognise. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Sheila. Hi, Sheila. <laughs> Sheila's, Sheila's sitting on, in the shade. Um, and we've had a, a very good speech from a woman who's a Muslim woman who lives around here. Um, it's just been wonderful. You can see there's absolutely loads of us. What's the point of the demo, Bernadette? Is it uh, about um, women's ponds or something? It's actually, oh, I'll read a little bit away. It's, it, is, um, it is a demonstration against the uh, inclusion of men in the term woman in yeah. the ponds. So there's a woman's pond. There's a men's pond and there is a mixed pond and um, they've included, the uh, authorities here have included men in the term, in the definition of women, uh, unfortunately. And, and as one of the speakers said, which was so brilliant, was they haven't changed the sign. So you walk down to the women's pond and the sign still says this is a woman, women only beyond this point, no men allowed. Language or something you, you would not expect to see a man in there, but we all know that um, Indy Willoughby he was here this morning apparently swimming in the pond and somehow in an area where there is supposed to be no photography, no cameras, no nothing, a picture was taken of said swim. So, 